Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. My name is Terrence M. Stanton, and this is being recorded on Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. And we are continuing to look at the book Fatima, A Spiritual Light for Our Times, Volume 2, by Father Carl Stellan of the Society of St. Pius X. And this is from Part 2, Chapter 3, entitled, The Reason for the Five Saturdays Devotion, Tui, 29th of May, 1930. Wanting to have more clarity regarding the devotion to the Immaculate Heart, Sister Lucia's confessor asked, Why does Our Lady want the consecration of five Saturdays, not nine or seven, in honor of the sorrows of Our Lady? In a revelation on the 29th of May, 1930, our Lord himself gave a reply. My daughter, the reason is simple. There are five types of offenses and blasphemies committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. One, blasphemies against the Immaculate Conception. Two, blasphemies against her virginity. Three, blasphemies against her divine maternity and refusing at the same time to recognize her as the mother of all mankind. 4. The blasphemies of those who publicly seek to sow in the hearts of children indifference or scorn, or even hatred of this Immaculate Mother. 5. The offenses of those who outrage her directly in her holy images. Hear, my daughter, the motive for which the Immaculate Heart of Mary inspired me to ask for this little act of reparation, and in consideration of it, to move my mercy to pardon souls who have had the misfortune of offending her. As for you, always seek by your prayers and sacrifices to move my mercy to pity for these poor souls. Those who wouldn't be able to accomplish the conditions on Saturday, can they do it on the following Sunday? The practice of this devotion will be accepted also on the Sunday following the first Saturday, if my priests, for an appropriate reason, give this permission to those who ask for it. Commentary This revelation is a wonderful introduction to new perspectives in the message of Fatima. It is an important explanation of the dimension of certain sins which offend our Lord and Our Lady. In the previous apparitions of the angel and of Our Lady, we understood that sin is a cause of sadness to God, and that it is the cause of damnation for poor sinners. Special attention was given to the most common sins, those of impurity, anger, hatred, jealousy, pride. There had also been warnings against the sins attributed to the errors of Russia, terrible indifference towards the immense love of God, neglect of one's salvation, and overwhelming materialism and desire for earthly pleasure. And world institutions described in the apocalypse as the beast in the service of the infernal dragon. In this revelation, our Lord speaks of a different sin. For the first time in the revelation of Fatima, we hear a reference made to blasphemy, a sin belonging to the worst category of sins against the first commandment of God. The malice of sin can vary in its intensity. When a sinner commits a moral evil, a sin, without being aware of the offense he commits against God, his sin is not as grave, although he still objectively commits a sin. More often, a sinner chooses moral evil, knowing very well that it is evil in some way, such that there is a subjective sin as well. In this case, the evil of the sin is more intense. For example, 
if someone were to rebuke your mother, convinced that she was deserving of reproof and scorn, there is no subjective sin if he was induced through error to believe that she deserves such treatment. In itself, however, such an insult is still objectively an offense and an injustice against your mother. In this way, very often Protestants objectively offend the mother of God and blaspheme her when they denigrate her privileges and honor, even though subjectively they are not guilty because they are without understanding, blinded by an invincible ignorance coming from their attachment to the teachings of a false religion. And what in this revelation is considered as blasphemy? The heresies denying the fundamental doctrines of faith concerning Our Lady. Heresy is the worst intellectual sin, more terrible than any other sin, the greatest attack against God, worse than murder or adultery. We know that from the beginning of the Christian era, heresies have always been amongst the devil's most effective weapons against the church. Through heresy, he seeks to destroy or at least weaken the church. But of all heresies, the most offensive are those against Our Lady. They dishonor her in three ways. Firstly, dishonoring her inner beauty and immaculate purity. Secondly, dishonoring her role in the work of salvation among men. And lastly, even dishonoring her spiritual presence in her beloved children in the measure that they resemble her, as well as in her holy images. Such heresies offend and insult the gracious heart of Mary much more even than the errors of Russia, and our Lord's urgent appeal to Lucia for reparation emphasizes the weight of such offenses. Since we are clearly in the last times, Fatima's message shows us that such blasphemies against Our Lady must have something to do with the second apocalyptic beast in the service of the infernal dragon, described as the false prophet, who appears like a lamb, but speaks like the dragon. To this argument, one might object that all mentioned blasphemies, blasphemous heresies, except the fourth one, recall ancient attacks against Our Lady, especially that of Protestantism, and have nothing to do with the trials of the latter times. The answer to this objection is, according to Cardinal Sarahara, Fatima initiates a new era in the Church and in history, the era of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and that the latter times are entrusted to the power of that woman in the Apocalypse who will be victorious in the final conflict. This exactly is the key to understanding the words of our Lord. The final battle between heaven and hell will be a conflict between Satan and the woman. Although the devil vehemently attacks her, he knows that his power ultimately will be futile because he cannot overcome her. So he hurls his forces against her in desperation and hatred to ridicule her, calumniate her, incite indifference towards her among men, trying to turn men away from her to their eternal damnation. Against these attacks, our Lord calls for acts of reparation, which take the offensive in this desperate war between the devil and the woman. Through reparation, we stand by her side and shield her honor from the enemy's hostility. The more the devil and his forces insult her, the more we must surround her with love and fidelity. Each act of reparation, with a single blow, repulses the enemy, weakens his power, and reduces his forces by converting souls and enlisting them in Our Lady's army as knights, understanding and defending the honor of their mother. Let us now consider one by one the blasphemies mentioned by our Lord and try to understand what they mean for us. For only if we comprehend the strategy of the enemy and the extent of his attacks can we effectively counterattack through devotion to her Immaculate Heart. 
1. Blasphemies Against the Immaculate Conception Three movements in history have denied the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. Protestantism categorically refuses to attribute any special privileges to Mary, since Protestants have chosen to regard her as a sinner like the rest of mankind. The schismatic Orthodox, on the other hand, generally believe in the privilege of the Immaculate Conception, but they do not recognize it as a dogma or revealed truth of our faith, but simply as a pious opinion of theologians, or at most as the common belief of the Church. Lastly, there are Catholics who, infected with the errors of modernism, doubt the privileges of Our Lady and consider the cult of devotion towards her as exaggerated, outdated, or even in contradiction with the new Church, in which the Immaculate Conception is an obstacle to the unity of all Christians. The decree on ecumenism at the Second Vatican Council distinguished between primary doctrines common to all Christians and other secondary, often controversial doctrines. In order for all Christian religions to come to an agreement, the decree implied that secondary teachings of the Church should be set aside, and among such secondary teachings they placed the Immaculate Conception. Hence, in the name of ecumenism, that dogma of faith has been set aside and ignored, leading to the practical rejection of a recognized and defined dogma. Such infidelity on the part of Catholics themselves is certainly the worst blasphemy against the Mother of God. We can go even further. The Immaculate Conception of Our Lady has an eminent practical significance for us. While she alone was conceived without original sin, for the rest of mankind, human nature is severely damaged. And this original sin is like a poison which we must remedy in ourselves, because sin infects human nature with an inclination towards evil, which we must fight our whole lives. Thus we find ourselves engaged in a constant spiritual struggle against the enemy of mankind, who induced Adam to sin in the beginning and wounded human nature so deeply. We can become weary, confused, and discouraged because of the constant struggle and the apparent difficulty of the spiritual life. Appealing to the Immaculate Conception in prayer is an enormous help for us. Her spiritual influence continues with the struggle on our behalf by rejuvenating our fallen nature with the grace of God. When we are close to her, we can see more clearly the poisonous effects and damages of sin, and hence also the remedy for our weakened human nature. How does she communicate this insight to us? By way of contrast, by placing our fallen humanity in the light of her immaculate heart. Then we can discern the hidden sources of corruption and the perfidious snares of the devil. Near her, we are inspired to embrace the ideals of her integrity, purity, and humility. From this perspective, we can understand the destructive, demoralizing effects of denying the Immaculate Conception. Such a heresy is a willful blindness to the pure and perfect plan which God had for us in the beginning, the plan for us to have a perfection similar to that embodied in Our Lady. She is the living realization of man's highest capacities, and the enemies of truth would make us forget this masterpiece of God's grace. As an architect is incapable of building a monumental structure if his plans are lost or taken away, so without the Immaculate Conception, we are incapable of constructing an authentic spiritual life. To make reparation for this blasphemy is to restore to the world the perfect ideal of God's creation. 2. Blasphemies Against Her Virginity The Catholic Church affirms the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, the essence of her virginity consists not only in the physical integrity of her body, but more importantly in her pure and total consecration to God, 
In both these senses, she was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of our Lord. The privilege of maternal virginity belongs to Mary alone. It means that her maternity did not take anything away from her virginity. It was rather a marvelous virginal consecration. Her great beauty can be found in the depths of her virginity, which is, as it were, the characteristic of a perfect masterpiece in God's hands. To deny Mary's virginity is to deny God's power and glory. Once her perpetual virginity is denied, it must be replaced by weakness of the flesh, a soul inclined to evil, defiled by the stain of the original sin, loss of virginal beauty in the one whom God chose as his own mother. Mary is reduced to a purely human condition, a simple woman, a common but good young girl. Protestantism, by conceiving Mary in this way, dishonors the perfect work of God in Our Lady. As debased as Protestantism is in its regard for Our Lady, those within the Church who deny her privileges are worse, because their infidelity is a betrayal of the explicit teaching of the Church. They would destroy the Church from within by their dissimulation. For a while, it was almost impossible for the Church hierarchy to correct or condemn modernists, since they seemed, on the outside, to be faithful devotees of Our Lady. In their insidious words, however, they would then rationalize away her privileges and so empty her of her honor. Pope St. Pius X was able to see through their strategy when a modernist periodical betrayed itself by openly denying Mary's virginity. The Holy Pontiff rushed to condemn their perfidy. To appreciate better the importance of the Immaculate Conception, we have to remember that throughout the history of the Church, consecrated virginity has always been held in high esteem by Catholics. Just as the priest is seen as embodying the presence of Christ on earth, so the consecrated virgin is considered to be a living symbol of the presence of the Virgin of Virgins. This Hebraism, Virgin of Virgins, means that Mary is not only preeminently a virgin, but that she is the archetype the ideal of all virginity. Pope Pius XII teaches that virginity owes its origin to Mary is the testimony of Athanasius and Augustine clearly teaches that the dignity of virginity began with the mother of the Lord. Encyclical Sacra Virginitas, number 65. Mary's virginal example is the source of beauty in every virgin, the interior wellspring of harmony and integrity. However, because this perfect masterpiece of God is a woman, of all the creatures that he made, women, and especially virgins, have a special relationship to Mary. And their most profound destiny consists of becoming, so to speak, rays of this sun, faint images and copies of it. From each of these images, a ray of that primordial plan of God is projected into the dark world, like a final hint of paradise, like a secret gleam of that new heaven and new earth. This, above all else, is the great duty of woman, to be an image a living icon of the Immaculata. That is why it is so necessary for a woman, a virgin, to follow her prototype. Mary gives the example of the virginal life and vocation, and the perfection of feminine nature comes about through conformity to her. To the extent that a woman reflects her in her life, she becomes precious, strong, pure, and preternaturally beautiful. All the saints have cast themselves into her heart like molten material into a mold and in that way they were formed according to her example. She encompasses all sanctity within herself. She is the source of all the most varied forms of virginity. From the most obscure girl, 
who, unknown to the world, performs her service with the utmost modesty to the most exalted, extraordinary missions of those women who are meant to show the world the strength and power of virginal beauty, such as St. Catherine of Siena or St. Joan of Arc, the Maid of Orléans, or St. Therese of the Child Jesus. The Church, in praying to Mary, or speaking about her, uses a magnificent title, Beata Maria Semper Virgo, Blessed Mary Ever Virgin. In doing so, Mother Church emphasizes the timeless, constant, and perpetual character of Mary's virginity. The word sempers testifies to a virginity in Our Lady, which transcends the changeable and passing nature of the world, to a personal quality in her, which is permanent and eternal. Thus Mary, Semper Virgo, represents in the created order the boundless virginal beauty of a pure, ardent, and infinite love of God. Every virginal soul participates in her own perpetual virginity. And the Church further teaches us that in heaven, this participation is characterized by a special mark of distinction worn by the blessed, called the aureole, or halo. Virgins, as well as martyrs and doctors of the Church, possess this special reward in heaven corresponding to the particularly glorious and outstanding nature of the victory they won in the pursuit of their heavenly crown. With this in mind, we can better understand how depraved are the blasphemies of those who reject the Immaculate Conception. Their heresy obliterates the memory of the most beautiful expression on earth of God's purity, Our Lady. To attack the perpetual virginity of Our Lady is to attack God's wisdom and creative love itself. 3. Blasphemies against her divine maternity and rejection of her role as mother of mankind. Here, our Lord speaks of a double blasphemy, not any more against the person of Our Lady, but against her twofold salvific mission. The first mission is her role in the life of our Savior Himself, the second is her role as mother of His mystical body. The fundamental dogma regarding Our Lady is her divine maternity, it is the fundamental privilege of her person upon which all of her other privileges and her role in redemption are based. St. John Henry Newman explains that all Christian denominations recognize that Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ, but many of them have the incomplete vision of the ancient heresy of Nestorianism, which sees Mary only as the mother of the humanity of Jesus and does not accept her as the mother of God. As a result, they deny her participation in the work of redemption, and do not see Mary as having a role in our personal salvation. Our Lady's spiritual motherhood is her essential mission in the Church with the members of the mystical body. To deny her spiritual motherhood is to refuse to hear and understand the most precious testament of our Lord as he hung dying on the cross, giving us his own mother as our mother. Son, behold your mother. If we do not embrace the meaning of those words, then Mary has no relationship to us as we will have no place among the members of the Church. If such is the case, then her interventions in history, and especially her particular apparitions, can only be empty illusions, terrible deceptions of the faithful. Such a blasphemy directly dishonors the mystery of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which is so clearly revealed throughout the entire message of Fatima, as the inexhaustible love of our Heavenly Mother for her children, to whom she gives all that she receives from God and possesses in herself. On a practical level, Mary's motherhood is the exemplar and measure of perfect motherhood on earth, which is meant to be an echo of Our Lady's divine maternity. Each human mother can live out her motherhood perfectly by seeing it in the light of Mary's motherhood. 
Christian parents should see their children as a gift of God, should see in each of their children the presence of the divine child. Conceiving and carrying the child in the womb should become a living reminder and representation of Mary's conception of the incarnate word and her bearing of Jesus Christ in her heart. The birth and raising of a child should be understood as a divine mission, that is, as a presentation and proclamation of Jesus Christ to the world. Christ can thus be seen in every soul. Jesus himself reaffirms this when he says that whoever does his will on earth is his brother, sister, and mother. Moreover, the Catholic doctrine of Mary's motherhood shows us the true relationship between Our Lady and Our Lord as the pattern of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Here on earth, he wants to be revealed to us at first in the same way that we become aware of a child, as one who is small and insignificant to the world. In the same way, he conceals himself in the Eucharist under the unassuming appearances of bread and wine. He wants us to love him as Mary loved him, that is, as a mother loves her child. For there is no more tender relationship of love on earth than that of a mother and child. But the ideal relationship that he reveals to us is not merely the natural and physical union of a mother and child, or a motherhood stained by original sin and selfish human needs. What is maternal in our relationship with Christ is the act of entering into the ideal of Mary's person and taking her maternity as our guide to closeness to Jesus. We must discover the particular way in which she is the mother of the eternal son, how she raised him, lived in his presence, and spoke with him because she united the most profound reverence for his majesty with the deepest possible intimacy of a pure love. In order to preserve our union with Christ from being abstract and unreal, God gave us a realistic and intense, concrete ideal of a mother and son. For is not the experience of fatherhood and motherhood one of the most sublime realities in human life? Again, these practical but inspiring characteristics of the divine motherhood of Our Lady are lost if the doctrine of her spiritual motherhood is denied. From this, we see how attacks on fundamental dogmas regarding the Blessed Virgin can demolish the entire edifice of our spiritual lives. 4. Blasphemies of those who publicly seek to sow in the hearts of children indifference or scorn or even hatred of this Immaculate Mother. Besides the direct blasphemies of doctrinal perversion and heresy, there are also the indirect blasphemies of immorality. Abortion, for example, is immoral, but not directly blasphemous. Depraved sins of this category are called scandals because they lead the innocent into evil. The worst among such sins is the seduction of children, particularly into sins against chastity. According to the gospel, such sins are among the worst of evils, so that it would be better that the one through whom such scandals came had not been born. The heart of a child is innocent and open. A child absorbs all that he receives and is formed by all that enters his mind and heart. If a child is exposed to evil, he will easily be disposed to evil for the rest of his life. However, scandal can also be blasphemous if such immorality directly insults God and his mysteries. Our Lord refers to such blasphemous scandal in those who are endowed with authority, politicians, employers, teachers, parents, who use their authority to induce their subordinates to sin. The heart of a child is like fertile ground in which whatever is planted will grow, whether it be good or bad. So our Lord rightly refers to those who publicly sow indifference, scorn, and even hatred against the Virgin Mary in the hearts of the young. 
This is the crime of scandal. What reparation are we called upon to offer for these crimes? We are asked to make atonement for the furious assaults of the enemy, by which he damns so many souls and blinds them to the grace of conversion. In his crimes against youth, Satan attacks with his most base strategy, his lowest form of malice, taking advantage of the innocence and simplicity of children who are unable to defend themselves. This is comparable to an armed force invading a defenseless city and killing the elderly and the children. Such a cowardly way of fighting has become universal and public today in the form of indoctrination. The youth, from their earliest years, have revolutionary ideology whispered into their ears, a strategy that is recognized and approved by those in authority. The first step is to sow indifference, an approach used widely by communists, Freemasons, and modernists. It creates the atmosphere for a general outlook on life, which affects a person's entire attitude. The secular environment in families and schools, a public life dominated by the things of this world, these make materialism the heart of human existence. Almost imperceptibly, secularism fills a human being with a penetrating emphasis on oneself, the ego, along with an obsessive desire for freedom from constraint. Such a mentality makes people superficial, giving them an habitual attitude toward the transcendent truths of the faith. It leads to an equally dismissive and trivializing attitude regarding the lures and temptations of the enemy. Goodness and the pursuit of virtue become boring. Evil becomes attractive. All that is not of the world is viewed with indifference. The enemy knows well enough that there is one great remedy for the spirit of indifference, the reality of the overwhelming love of a heavenly mother for her children. Even the devil cannot uproot that deepest of relationships among men, the relationship of mother and child. He knows with certainty that she alone can rescue endangered youth and restore enthusiasm for the service of her divine son and the salvation of souls. Satan is therefore bitterly determined to sow indifference towards her among men, and in this way to obscure the reality of the divine motherhood. No one hates something to which he is indifferent. He simply does not care. So in order to make men hate Our Lady, the devil excites men to scorn the ideals of purity and virginity. And since Our Lady is the model par excellence of these transcendent virtues, scorn of purity and virginity is in fact an insult to her, who is the source and exemplar of all that is pure and consecrated. What begins as scorn is quickly followed by hatred. For if someone is poisoned by impurity, then he will hate more and more that which bothers his conscience. The impure will first look with jealousy on the innocent and pure. Then that jealousy will turn into hatred because the pure of heart have a certain beauty and youthful vigor of spirit, whereas the impure quickly lose the vitality of life. 5. The offenses of those who outrage her directly in her holy images. This last blasphemy is a direct and personal offense against Our Lady, more so than the iconoclasm of the 8th century, which was a misunderstanding of the worship of God and the saints. This new form of blasphemy is prompted by a hatred of Mary and a rejection of God. It is directed against images and representations of Our Lady. It is the final step in the devil's overall strategy against Our Lady, which begins by insinuating errors, the three first blasphemies mentioned by our Lord, then subtly changes mentalities, the fourth, and finishes by an open war on her presence in the world symbolized by her holy images. 
To see the reality of this attack, it is sufficient to recall the fate of communist countries since 1917. For wherever the errors of Russia were spread, there were always persecutions of Christians accompanied by the destruction of the symbols of their faith. This outline of blasphemies against God and the Virgin Mary is a study of the tactics and forces of the enemy of the kingdom of God. Because God has given command of his camp in the later times to his holy mother, all attacks of the enemy are directed against the woman clothed in the sun. 6. Our Response Our Lady's conclusion in explaining these blasphemous assaults is a clear directive for reparation. Here, my daughter, the motive for which the Immaculate Heart of Mary inspired me to ask for this little act of reparation, and in consideration of it, to move my mercy to pardon souls who have had the misfortune of offending her. As for you, always seek by your prayers and sacrifices to move my mercy to pity for these poor souls. Our Lord promises mercy as a remedy for such hostile blasphemy. He confirms once more the great importance and profound value of acts of reparation, one of the fundamental themes of Fatima. The revelation of God's merciful plan unveils the sovereignty and majesty of Jesus Christ, before whom the most violent attacks are as nothing. If we consider his words more closely, we will immediately find a very important distinction between the sin of blasphemy in itself and the poor sinners who commit it. Our Lord gives no quarter to the infernal dragon, his devils and ideologies, but he extends a plentiful mercy to poor, misled souls. Heaven has formed a strategy against hatred and blasphemy to defeat the enemy by winning over souls through conversion, to make lambs of the wolves. The ready pardon of Jesus Christ will convert many souls who are attracted by his mercy and pity. He extends this pardon, however, only through the intercession of his Holy Mother, and she does this in the measure that we seek by prayers and sacrifices to beg mercy for sinners. Oremos. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. Memorare de Saint Joseph. Remember, O most chaste spouse of the Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, my spiritual father, and beg your protection. O foster father of the Redeemer, despise not my petitions, but in your goodness hear and answer me. Amen. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis. Sancti Yosef, terra daimonem, ora pro nobis. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you very kindly, my friends, for listening to episode 130 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. Once again, my name is Terence M. Stanton. Please share this podcast with everyone you know. We're going to begin a novena to ask the Lord for the proper consecration of Russia to the Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart by the Pope and all the Catholic bishops of the world beginning tomorrow. This is crucial, so please join us then, and please share the love of our Lord Jesus Christ with everyone you know. Goodbye, and God love you. <laughs>